And as you're seated, would you just pray with me for a moment? Lord, we uh, sang just before this that all is vain unless the Spirit of the, Holy, of the Holy One comes down. And that includes the preaching. This preaching is vain uh, unless the Holy Spirit uh, comes down and works through it. And so, uh, Lord, would you do that? Would you be at work uh, among us, not only among us, but in us, in our hearts, uh, Lord, to the end, that for those of us who have put our faith in you, we would die to self and live more and more into Christ. Lord, that our lives would bear much fruit uh, to the benefit of many, to the glory of your name. Uh, and Lord, for those of us here who may be curious uh, about the gospel, hearing about it maybe for the first time, uh, Lord, would uh, your Holy Spirit be at work in their hearts as well, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would receive Jesus uh, with great joy. Uh, we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, if you were to look at a, a picture of me as a, as a young boy, you'd probably see me smiling, and I imagine one of the reasons I'm smiling is that the internet had yet to be invented. Um, and of course, we all know that uh, we're in the age of social media. There's been no shortage of attention uh, given to the influence of social media in all kinds of, in all areas of life, and business, and communications in our culture, in our politics, and, and, and certainly in our religion. And about a month ago, I came across an article uh, which had to do not so much with social media's influence on religion, but which had to do with social media as religion. The article is called The Empty Religions of Instagram uh, by a woman named Laura Stein, who identifies as uh, not a particularly religious person, um, and as a millennial, and the article describes, uh, in the article, she describes certain Instagram influencers as those who provide their followers with an accessible combination of self-care, activism, and tongue-in-cheek Christianity in order to help people worship at any time, day or night, at the electric church of the Instagram feed. She notes that 22% of millennials claim no religious affiliation at all. These are known demographically as the nuns, um, a number that grows every year. But then she asked this question, and it kind of stopped me in my tracks. She asked the question, but are we truly non-religious? Or are our belief systems too bespoke, customized, to appear on a list of major religions in a Pew phone survey. She describes this customized belief system, at least for her and her peers, as a blend of left-wing political orthodoxy, intersectional feminism, self-optimization, therapy, wellness, astrology, and Dolly Parton. <laughs> and along with these convictions, she says Instagram provides even more. They provide, it provides clergy in and among personal growth influencers, all there in the palm of your hand. And yet, for all the access and spiritual customization that the swipe of an index finger has on offer, she admits it is not enough. She confesses that the pandemic has cracked open inside me a profound yearning for reverence, humility, and awe. 
She goes on to say, I have an overdraft on my outrage account. I want moral authority from someone who isn't shilling a memoir or calling out their enemies on social media for clout. Longing for the opportunity, she goes on to say, to ask the fundamental questions that leaders of faith have been wrestling with, with for thousands of years. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? What should we believe in beyond the limits of our puny selfhood? Facing the reality that instead of helping us to engage with our most important questions, our screens might actually be distracting us from them. She concludes the article at the end wondering out loud, maybe we actually need to go to something like church. Well, last week, Greg and I were down in El Paso for our quarterly presbytery meetings. This church is part of a regional, it's part of a denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. It's part of, which is made up of regional groupings of churches where we gather together as pastors. It was wonderfully encouraging, good fellowship, uh, wonderful things happening uh, in this region. And uh, I participated on a little panel of pastors and elders talking about how the the uh, pandemic has affected us. And you might imagine that could have gone on forever. Um, but in the course of that conversation, it was pointed out that COVID, you know, hasn't actually created anything among us, uh, but it's exposed a lot among us. T to use Laura Stein's language, it has cracked some things open in us, revealing to us some things that have been there all along, right? This morning, we're looking at something that's in all of us, um, a fundamental thing about being a human being, and that is that we were made for community. Uh, our greatest needs as people are people. And we've been looking at this passage in Acts as, as not just descriptive of what the church used to be, but actually prescriptive of what the church is called to be right now, right here. Um, and when we started off, we, we saw that the first thing that Luke had to say about the church had to do with its devotion. Uh, devotion not at the cost of doing things, uh, but, but devotion really at the core of everything we do. Devotion, love for Jesus. A love for Jesus born out of knowing that he has loved us first, right? So it's worth paying attention to this place in the Bible, the, the very first place where the church is described, to see that, you know, it's not described as culturally transformational, it's not described as catalytic. It's not even described as attractive or active or busy or committed uh, or, or relevant or Presbyterian. Uh, it's described as devoted. And, and at the core of its devotion is this thing that Luke calls the fellowship. The fellowship of believers. We're going to look at this as a fellowship, at the fellowship as that which is created by God, as that which is cultivated through the gospel, and finally as that which is contagious uh, to the community in which it is, it's been called. Now, there's few words that fare as poorly as fellowship, in my, in my humble opinion. I mean, if you're a church person, uh, this is the word uh, we use to describe maybe the, the time where we drink some, you know, below-average coffee, and not at this church, but a lot of churches. Um, you know, below-average snacks, that's our fellowship time, or maybe it's the room in which we do that, it's the fellowship hall, or if we get really crazy... You know, we might even fellowship after church, right? Um, but the word translated fellowship here, one scholar that I came across said 
This is, in fact, among the richest, most significant words in the whole Bible. It's, it's a word, you know, if you've been in church uh, for any amount of time, you may have heard it. The Greek uh, word is koinonia. Um, and what's tricky about that word is it doesn't have a great English equivalent. Uh, it describes more than a collection of people. It describes more than the act of getting together or, or putting on an event. Uh, we're, we're getting close to it when we look at verse 44. And there's this idea of people sharing in common with. But, but even then, we're, we're not quite all the way there. Because koinonia really describes more than what happens when people connect with each other. What it's describing fundamentally is the result of what God has done in connecting with us. And what grows from that. Koinonia means we're all in this together and one of us is the Lord. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his, in his great essay, The Weight of Glory. He says this, We are summoned from the outset to combine as creatures with our Creator, as mortals with immortal, as redeemed sinners with sinless Redeemer. His presence, the interaction between Him and us must always be the overwhelmingly dominant factor in the life we are to lead within the body. Any conception of Christian fellowship, which does not mean primarily fellowship with him, is out of court. Koinonia fundamentally is fellowship with him and the fruits that ensue from that. So, so that's the first thing to know about it. it. It isn't just us flexing our social skills. It's entering into what God has created as a gift, which is the church. This is how it's described all over the Bible, like in 1 Corinthians 1.9, believers aren't described as creating fellowship, but as being called into it, called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the fruit of salvation, which is described as fellowship by the apostle John in 1 John 1, so that he says, when you put your faith in Christ, what has happened there? You have fellowship with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So the life in Christ that creates fellowship with God is the very one that connects you to fellowship with his people. One results with the other, and the, and the order matters. In fact, I'd argue that God's creation of fellowship with us and among us is one of the reasons that Luke says that when the church was created here, awe came upon every soul. That the that, that, the existence of the fellowship ought to be counted among the signs and wonders that were being done among them. Because God created fellowship among people who would otherwise have nothing to do with each other. He creates out of chaos, and here he creates koinonia out of the chaos. The church described here in verse 43, as all who believed were together and had all things in common, is the very same group among whom there existed deep, intense, ongoing, generational enmity. If, if making a church out of that isn't a miracle, I don't know what is. Just before this, Luke goes into unbelievable, granular detail about this gathering that the Lord had brought together and poured out his Holy Spirit on in Pentecost. He talks about a gathering that included Galileans, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and Mesopotamians, Judeans and Cappadocians, people from Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Romans, Jews, proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And I don't even know if that's a complete list. 
But see, for anyone reading this at the time, they would have looked at this and said, this is a combustible collection of rivalries, separations, suspicions, old grudges, active hatreds. This is a Jerry Springer show waiting to happen. And we ought to, you know, I, I, I kind of struggled this week with how to translate this, but it's as, it's as if saying, you know, the Black Lives Matter people and the MAGA people and the, and the right-wingers and the left-wingers and the Bloods and the Crips and the Yankees and the Southerners or whatever it is, you know, they were all together for the glory of God. I was reminded of an article I read just before the European Union was formed. I was a poli-sci major, political science major in college, and this was happening at the time I was in college, 1993, and the article was exploring this question of whether there was such a thing as a common European identity. Um, so that, you know, the idea was with the formation of the EU, you know, a person from Portugal and a person from Poland might be able to say, you know, before I'm a Pole or before I'm Portuguese, I'm European. You know, that's at the bottom of, of, of their um, identity. And, you know, it's, it, and that was kind of the vision, right? That's the vision of the unity. Just line up the politics and the trade policy and, and, and we will create a whole new identity and a whole new level of unity. And in the article, they go to this little village in Italy and they find this little man sitting outside on a bench and they ask him, you know, what do you think of this idea of a common European identity? I mean, is that how you identify? You know, before you're Italian, do you feel that you're an, a European? And apparently he thought for a second and he just said, let me just explain this to you. Um, let me put it this way. Everyone in this village hates everyone in the next village. It's not that easy, right? Unity among people. You see, Luke describes this gathering in such detail so that we would know these are people who never in a million years would even be in the same room with each other. And yet, here they are, they are together in the deepest sense of that word. And that's a miracle. And like all miracles, only God can pull it off. D.A. Carson speaks about the miracle of the fellowship in his little book, Love and Hard Places, where he says this about the church. He says, the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. It's a miracle. It's created by God. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the capacity to create togetherness like that, to form one new people, people from every nation under heaven, as it says in verse 5, where enemies are made friends because we were enemies. We who are enemies of God have been made friends and sons and daughters of God through Christ Jesus and have been made brothers and sisters through the gospel. Now that is the truth of the reconciling power of the gospel in the church that God creates. And, and that truth, I want to say, ought to function as something of a test in the church and our experience in it. Like, are we seeing this? Are we experiencing this? Are we seeing... Uh, something of this dynamic of a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake, or are we merely curating for ourselves a collection of like-minded people 
that make us feel okay about ourselves. I have to say, one of the things I'm so thankful for, and I think this church is greatly gifted in this capacity, we are a friendly church. I hear this all the time. I've experienced it. We're very welcoming. Uh, my family has been, we've been here not even two years. We've been welcomed. We've been in so many homes and experienced the grace of that. Um, and I praise God for that gift uh, in this church. But, you know, it's important to say, <laughs> in light of this, uh, light of the scriptures, being socially skilled and friendly and welcoming is not a good foundation for a church, for the fellowship. It's a pitiful foundation. Because the fellowship we're a part of is that which God creates and calls us into and entrusts to us to cultivate the thing he has done in reconciling sinners to himself. And, and you know, that's convicting to me. I don't know about you because, I, you know, I used to think I was kind of above that. And, and you know, that I... You know, that I've got the social IQ and the skills and the generous heart to, to, to build the church. Until I heard about ERP. There's a proven concept in psychology that goes by this acronym ERP, E-R-P. It stands for Estimated Relationship Potential. And, and what, what is being described there is an unconscious, unconscious phenomenon that kicks in whenever you or me or any human being meets another person for the first time. And basically, what goes on is this. Within seconds of meeting someone, we are, we are not only determining the potential of that relationship, we are estimating our relationship potential, we are rendering a verdict on it. And the research shows that the verdict basically sticks. You know, within a couple of seconds. So, you know, if you meet someone and you like their t-shirt or their handshake, you know, or where they're from, we, we render the verdict that they're worthy of us. And, you know, on the flip side, if you don't like the way they might, you know, if you don't like how they make eye contact or what they do for a living or how they vote, we've rendered another verdict that they will never be friends with us. But the glory of the gospel is that it presses upon us. It delivers a powerful grace that creates fellowship where we would otherwise destroy it by overturning the ERP verdicts and, you know, that we so hastily render in, our, in, our, in the courtrooms of our crooked little hearts. That's only possible because God has poured out new life in us because he has given us, as we sang earlier, all is vain unless the Holy Spirit is poured out as comes, comes down. We have the Holy Spirit reminding us always, you've received a gracious verdict. You should have been turned away. You should have been condemned. But God has brought you to himself. He has connected you to himself and to others so that there's always room for more in my life, so that we can set aside the curating of friendships for ourselves and enjoy the great gift of God choosing our friends for us. Surprising ways, certainly. Challenging ways, of course but it's a gift. So it ought to be a regular part of our experience as Christians that we're being struck with this beautiful thought that the only reason I'm even in the same room with this person is Jesus. Glory. Jesus is why we're together. The key word in verse 44 is, is, is you know, I think not all who believed, but all who believe were together. Together in the richest sense of the word, not just being in the same place at the same time. We all know how painful it can be to, to, be to, to, 
to be together, but not to really be together, right? You know what it's like to be someone, but you know they're not really with you. They're, they're checking their watch all the time. Their, arms are, their, their eyes are darting around the room. Uh, whatever you say is met with a perfunctory kind of uh-huh. You know they're not listening to you. You're together, but you're not together. And untogether togetherness is painful, right? It's hurtful. You talk to people who've had that experience in churches, and it is that which causes them to never come back. Because they're there, but they know they're not really there. You're not there for them. So God's gracious through the gospel to give us more than just a gathering, but, but togetherness, unity, deep love for one another from the heart, as Peter puts it. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a, a bunch of metaphors used to des- describe the church uh, in the Bible. And among those, you know, for all those metaphors, I think there are two that really loom largest Uh, both as pictures of how the gospel uh, creates community, uh, creates fellowship, and how how that fellowship is cultivated. The first is this idea of the church as a family or as a household. Um, You know, and what's a family? A family is a group of people who are related, uh, people who share such a deep relation uh, that all of life is shared. You eat together. You live together. Uh, you, you plan together. You, you play together. You, you see each other in the morning before you've cleaned up for the world, right? You speak to each other more personally, intimately, and lovingly than you might with those who aren't in the family. You also, I think, speak more directly and honestly and pointedly with those who aren't a part of your family. You don't worry about getting into people's business, and, and, and they're allowed to kind of get into your business because you're family, Right? Uh, and you, you, you can't blow off your family. I mean, you can do all kinds of things with your family. You can leave them. You can curse them. You can change your name. You can, you know, proclaim that I'll never have anything to do with them ever again. But, but what has all that resulted in? You still have a mom and a dad. You still have your family. Forever. In a healthy way or in an unhealthy way. So the other metaphor for the church is that of the body, the human body. Uh, this, is, this is actually the metaphor we, we use when we talk about becoming a part of the church, right? We talk about becoming a member of the church. Uh, that word member uh, derives from the old French. The English word we have for member just means limb, like an arm or a leg. Limbs, body parts only function. They only work. They only make sense when they are joined with the body of which it is a part, a body which has lots of different, wildly different parts, but which all work together. Ears and eyes and fingernails and big toes and pancreases. In unity, joined in this integral way and intimate ways so that there's healthy connection in bone and tissue and nerves and blood vessels, right? So, you know, God uses membership as the delivery system of a deep, deep grace by which we're able to cultivate koinonia, the koinonia that he has created among us, and we ought not to spurn that gift. We ought not to be an amputated limb, but animated by the body to which he has called us, making the most of it. You see, the gospel delivers a grace that creates interdependency among us, even as it deepens dependency on Jesus, our head, the life of the body, apart from whom we have no life. So what this means, actually, is that 
being a member of the church is almost the exact opposite of our contemporary understanding of membership uh, when, when you think about it. And, and I'll just give you my own experience of this. When I was a kid, I was a member of 4-H. I was also a member of the American Dairy Goat Association. You know? Uh, I was a member of that. And basically, I was joined with a group of a lot of kids who were exactly like me. You know, a bunch of knuckleheads who wore Wranglers, who were trying to learn how to dip Copenhagen, and all of us had dairy goats. But here's the glorious thing. God's membership is not that. You know, because we might choose our friends, but God chooses our family. Integrates us into the interdependence and dependency that's part of being a member of the body, what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 12, one body with many members. And, you know, so that all the members of the body, though many, are one body. And I would encourage you to go and read that maybe later this afternoon. Go read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. It's a deep, deep contemplation of the glory of what God has done in creating the body of Christ and in calling us to join with it. So when we embrace and enter into God's gift of the church as a member, I think we learn two kind of fundamental truths. I'm incomplete apart from his body, and others are absolutely essential to the body. The gospel works into us a growing sense of the need for his church, while at the same time deepening my love and appreciation and dependence on others in his church. And that is not to say it's easy. Um, in fact, I suspect that one of the reasons churches can kind of be hard in this way is that God would do exactly that, grow us in dependence on him. Lord, give me mercy. I'm having a hard time loving people. I, I, my, my social IQ, as high as it may be, is falling short. Thank you that you deliver grace for my relationships. Help me in this. Family can be hard. It can be intense. But God gives us grace to pursue people we might otherwise walk away from to love people who may be hard to love, to enable others to love us who are hard to love, to reconcile with people who may have wronged us. God's church is so precious to him, and he loves the people that we're called to love. Richard Mao, the former president of Fuller Seminary, a Bible scholar, he made the observation once that since everybody's made in the image of God, they're God's work of art, and that means that re relationships is fundamentally an exercise in art appreciation. You know, and, and we live in one of the great art cities in the world, and maybe you've been into galleries and museums around here, and you come around a corner and you see a painting, and you go, I mean, it just feeds your soul. You just go, I could stand here and take this in all day, and I'm coming back tomorrow to see it again, and I'm bringing more people. And you just have that connection, but then... You know, then there's other kinds of works of art where you're, you just stand there and you go, I don't get it. This is going to maybe take some time and some contemplation and, and some kind of, you know, closing one eye and standing a little further back and, you know, having someone come along to explain it to me. And yet, there's still a craft there. There's still the work of the artist that conveys the thought and the greatness and the beauty. If only you'll have the patience and the grace to... Stick with it. If only we don't walk away too soon. And yet, we all know the pain of being together without being together, isolating ourselves, alienating ourselves. I think we do this far more easily and instinctively than we might want to admit, actually. 
1930, John Steinbeck wrote an essay called In Awe of Words, and he said this, we are lonesome animals. We spend all our life trying to be less lonesome. One of our ancient methods is to tell a story, begging the listener to say and feel yes. That's the way it is. Or at least that's the way I feel it. You're not as alone as you thought. It seems to me that the thing we are most terrified of is also the thing we kind of long for the most, and that is to be truly, deeply known. And God delivers that in his fellowship in the church at the heart of the good news of Jesus is finding that we can be known right down to the bottom of who we are and not rejected but embraced. Embraced, brought in, loved, cared for. If, you're, if you've been around Christian circles much at all, you're probably accustomed to hearing about the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus, which is a biblical, sound idea. If, if you're a Christian and say you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, that would warrant a really important conversation, I think. But, you know, I think we also need to join with that. What's urged upon us with every bit as much emphasis in the Bible is that we're all called into a social relationship with Jesus. It's not only personal. It is social. And that's because of the nature of the gospel itself, that we worship a relational God who's gone outside of himself, who has sought others for the sake of reconciliation and relationship with him and between us. The gospel creates that. It cultivates that because it is, by its very nature, the antidote to alienation and loneliness and rejection. And that is why the scriptures literally have no category for the non-congregating Christian. Because that is a contradiction of what it means to be a Christian. Fundamental to being a Christian is being in relationship with God and with his people. So, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful for the video streaming service we have here. I'm very thankful that we tape our sermons, that we post those on our website and on a podcast, that we have all kinds of online resources. But please understand... For those of you watching at home, please understand, those are in place as supplemental supports for those who may not be able to gather here personally for whatever reason, but they are not a substitute. Finally, it's vital that we consider not only what we might be getting out of the fellowship for ourselves, but also what we are giving to it, or maybe by withholding ourselves, denying the community to which we've been called. You see, the fellowship of believers doesn't just exist for us. It exists for Santa Fe. It exists for the world. Christian fellowship in that sense is like a sacrament. It's a sign that points to something outside of itself, points to what God is doing here and now as a sign and a wonder in Santa Fe, as that which should someone experience it and see it ought to strike awe in them. How is such a thing possible? That God is gracious through the power of the gospel to heal our isolation, to heal our alienation, our enmity, our division. The fruit of a new life is a whole new way to live. That he's given us in the fellowship, the body of Christ, as living proof that the new life starts here, in this life. Luke actually goes on to describe how radically different this life is in verses 45, telling us that all who believed were together 
and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had, had need. Now, you know, I'll tell you, there's no shortage of interpretive gymnastics that gets applied to that passage because it, you know, it seems so radical. Socialism. You know, and, and, and I want to be careful you know, um, to not brush aside the radical nature of it a little bit. Because a big chunk of this passage is focused on people sharing everything. And, 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 you know, it's important to say, you can't find a place where making lots of money or having lots of stuff is condemned in the Bible, and, and oh, by the way, how do you give anything away if you don't have anything to begin with, right? This isn't really a passage about an economic philosophy, but here's what I think it's about. I think it is a passage about the extent to which the power of the resurrection has penetrated my life and the life of the community to which I've been called. Like, are we hanging on to our lives and everything we manage to eke out of that life as mine, all mine? Or is the gospel reordering things? Is it shaking up my usual social and material arrangements? Is it showing that I understand that the new life has begun in this life? I'm not trying to make a life of my own here but I've received it by grace. Are we able to point to ways in which the impact of the gospel has been for us personally and corporately unsettling, specific, and substantial to the glory of God and the good of others? And I, I can't tell you what that may look like in your life, and, and I, I'll go even further to say, nor should I. We're not binding consciences here. I can only ask the question of myself and and, and, and of you, you know, when was the last time I denied myself something in order that someone else might enjoy it? How, how has the generosity of God toward me in any way disrupted my lifestyle for the good of another person's life? In what ways is the good news of Jesus Christ doing the gracious work of reorienting and redefining the way I relate to people who aren't like me and, let's be honest, people I don't like? Luke describes something here broadly in this chapter that I think he details really personally in, in chapter 19 of his gospel. And a story, a famous story about, a, you know, as, as the kids sing, a wee little man named Zacchaeus <laughs> who came to new life in Jesus. It's worth going back and reading that too because it's not just a story about this particular character of Zacchaeus. It's really a story about the whole community. Uh, one he was alienated from, one in which he was despised, one he had been doing harm to, uh, using for his own gain and to the hurt of others, that is until he came to faith in Jesus. And then everything was turned upside down and he was moved to repentance and there was fruit in keeping with that repentance and doing everything he could with his life and his resources to bring healing and wholeness to the community he had been tearing apart up until then because he knew that God had created something, new life in him, that God was cultivating the fellowship, and that that was reorienting everything for him. And now Luke is telling the story of an entire community doing the same thing so that everything that was once held tightly as essential to my life, the grip on that is loosened and is set free because they've been set free. 
That changed life, that changed community, made their fellowship contagious. It became dynamic, growing, porous. People could enter in, absorbent. People were being drawn in. In saying that the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day, those who were being saved, he isn't just telling us that God grew, grew his church. He's telling us how God grew his church. Through the fellowship, being together here for worship, inviting people along, always making new friends, gathering in our homes, sharing meals. There's a big meal theme in this passage. Having great parties. Going out in Santa Fe and connecting with people where they live over coffee or a meal or a hike or whatever. That is why fellowship is so central to our vision as a church because the gospel is central and it must be shared so that the fellowship God has created grows in number day by day. This is why your pastors are committed to being not sitting in our office waiting for people to show up, like they're coming to the principal's office. But a big part of our job is being around Santa Fe and spending time with people and getting to know them where they are and saying, have you heard about the fellowship? God's doing a new thing here. There's new life. <laughs> come, and, come and see. So maybe that means we can come to church and begin thinking, you know, as much about who's not here as who is here. Praying that it would be our delight to share not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we're very grateful uh, for the gift of the fellowship. We're, I'm glad to be reminded that it is not, you know, an accessory to my life, but it is essential to my life. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would uh, enjoy it. Enjoy the good gifts that you have on offer for us in the, in the good news of Jesus and in seeing the fruit that comes from that, first of which is the church itself. Lord, we have benefited from that greatly. As we come to this table, we're reminded week in and week out of this great truth that the new life starts here, that as we partake of this meal, we are getting an appetizer of the great feast where we will sit with you, Lord Jesus, where sin will be no more, where every tear that this world brings will have been dried by you, and where we will feast on the richest affair with our Lord and Savior Jesus who has given us new life and all things with it. So Lord, um, we pray that we would come to this table uh, mindful of those things, savoring those things, allowing those, that truth to reorient our lives, not around our lives, but around you. Um, Lord, feed us at this table, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.